1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to read the first several verses here, down through verse 7. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Toward the end of last week, I was reading a magazine that I subscribe to, and really the sea thought and the raw skeleton of what I want to give to you today came from an article that I was reading there in that magazine. I found it very thought-provoking and very encouraging for us as we go to the Lord in prayer. Paul is writing to Timothy, and the purpose of his writing is to set in order and to urge the church at Ephesus through Timothy to have their conduct proper in the house of the Lord. And Paul and Timothy are living in a day, not like today, but in some aspects similar. He lived in a day of encroaching governmental pressures and a rising persecution. Who was the emperor? Nero. Nero had come into power. And Nero was not a nice man. He did not conduct a kind and gentle administration. And in fact, not soon soon after this, Nero would light up his parties by wrapping believers, Christians, in flammable garments and lighting it on fire. And literally, God's people were giving the light to his sinful parties. So he was not a nice man, was he? And of course, later on, he would actually, uh, the rumor is, is that he actually set Rome ablaze, and then he blamed the Christians for doing that so that the population would have a turn of sentiment against them. But the point here is, is that definitely in the days of 1 Timothy, they probably could have picked up these encroaching governmental pressures and probably even realize in their own hearts and minds of an increasing persecution. Paul would actually 
end up warning Timothy about that, that in the last days, perilous times would what? Perilous times would come. And in fact, from the date of 1 Timothy, some approximately four years later, Paul would have his head cut off by the Roman government under Nero's administration. It does strike us as unusual for Paul in this epistle to actually take time to say in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, that in the services of the church, that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority. And of course you get you kind of get the whiff of what they are anticipating when he says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What makes this so unusual is the fact of the church had a multitude of problems. And yet Paul takes time to actually urge the church to pray in this specific area. If you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3, there were certain men there who were straying from the proper uh, objectives of the gospel. He says in verse 3, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, Timothy, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So were there men in the church teaching strange doctrine? The answer to that, of course, is yes. That would be serious, would it not? And, verse 4, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration or dispensation of God which is by faith, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But these certain men, verse 6, straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the manners about which they are making confident assertions. This was a very serious thing here in the church. And Paul tells Timothy, now, take care of this. Command them not to teach these strange doctrines. He's going to go on in other parts of the book. He's going to give the qualifications for an elder. That's highly important, isn't it? He's going to give the qualifications for a deacon. That's highly important. And their wives. He's going to go on and give a warning to Timothy and to ministers in general how they are to give themselves to the teaching, chapter 4, verse 16, and persevere in these things, for in doing so you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. That's highly critical in the life of a church. He tells Timothy, don't get caught up, chapter 4, verse 8, in bodily disciplines. Evidently there was some ascetics there, people that were overemphasizing bodily discipline. No, what we need is godliness that is profitable for 
all things. In verse 10, we're laboring for this. We're striving for this. Make sure your relationships in the church with widows and elderly men are proper. Don't uh, make sure your widows that you are supporting financially are qualified for that support. He talks about elders, chapter 5, verse 17, who rule well, should be considered worthy of double honor. He talks about those who are in sin. Once that is confirmed, rebuke them publicly. Then he goes on into chapter 6, and he talks about relationships, master-slaves, make sure those are proper. He talks about people who are advocating, chapter 6, verse 3, a different doctrine instead of godliness with contentment would be great gain. He actually instructs the rich that are there not to be haughty with their financial accumulation, but to use their money for good works. And he concludes the book in chapter in chapter 6, verse 20, by saying, Timothy, now you guard what's been given to you, which means somebody's on the prowl to what? To steal it away. You guard this, Timothy. And Timothy definitely had his hands full with this type of instruction in putting the church in order. Wouldn't you agree with that? And then all of a sudden, in the middle of here, you got, now, pray for kings. <laughs> and all who are in authority. And that really begs a question, why is this? Let me give you another interesting aspect about this book that even heightens it a little bit more. And that is, we go back to chapter 2, verse 1. He talks about praying for kings. But there is something unusual here with this book And it is this. In all of the Pauline epistles, only in 1 Timothy does Paul use the word king as a title for Jesus Christ. Now you do do read about that in Matthew, right? Matthew's the gospel of the coming king. And I didn't look through Acts to see if there was any references there to Jesus Christ, but most of the references just glancing down through that had to do with earthly kings. You go into Romans, you go into 1 Corinthians, you go into all those epistles, no mention of Jesus Christ as king. In fact, there's no mention of Jesus Christ as king in the epistles until you get to the book of Revelation. And he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's called the Ruler of Kings. Isn't that interesting? So Paul is saying now, first of all, I want you to pray for kings and all who are in authority. It would be our government. It could be parental authorities. It could be elder authorities. It could be any authority. Just pray for authorities in general. And then you read in chapter 1, verse 17, this. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
And brethren, I do think that that is significant in light of what we are perceiving of encroaching governmental pressures and a rising persecution. That is happening when we read 1 Timothy. And so Paul turns to Jesus Christ and reminds us that He is what? He is King. Now you're here in chapter 1. I want you to turn to chapter the end of this book, chapter 6. And I'll begin reading in verse 14. Keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. And we all say what to that? Amen. So at the beginning of the book, only place in the Pauline epistles, he mentions Jesus Christ as who? King. End of the book, he mentions Jesus Christ as King. And here in chapter 2, he says, now, pray. Pray to who? Well, folks, we have, to, we have to conclude he's saying pray to the king. Right? You pray to the king for the kings of the earth. And folks, when you, when you and I sense encroaching governmental testing, if we can look on the horizon and see dark clouds forming, There needs to be the comfort of Jesus Christ, not merely the comfort of Him as a prophet giving us the words of God. And not merely Him as our priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But we need the comfort and the reminder that Jesus Christ is capital K. He is the King. Now if you look at chapter 1, verse 17, what is our encouragement with this when we are praying for governmental leaders and those who are in authority? It is these attributes about our King. Chapter 1, verse 17. What is the first attribute? He is, the King is, eternal. Now that means he's not temporary. The kings of the earth are what? They're temporary. He is eternal. He is immortal. Meaning he will never what? He'll never die. Kings of the earth, they they die. 
He is also invisible. Kings of the earth make themselves very, very visible. But He is invisible. And one day He will be made visible to all the earth. Book of Revelation. Folks, our King is the only God. And you remember that in Rome, the emperors in Rome were claiming deity. Caesar's not God. The Democrats and the Republicans aren't God. Our King is the only God. Which means He is the true God regardless of what others may say. And all honor and glory forever and ever belong to who? It belongs to Him. So brethren, wouldn't it make sense as we think about our nation, our earth, as we think about all the movements of the nations and all the so-called pretender kings who want to be predominant and sovereign over all peoples, Folks, wouldn't it make sense that we just need to stop back and think to ourselves about our great King? He is eternal, immortal, invisible, the only true God. Only to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people recognize His kingship. He is that King. So therefore, when a church comes together, it makes sense that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings on the earth to who? The King of Kings. Everybody see that? Isn't that encouraging in the light of what you and I may be seeing coming down the pipe here in the future? So let's go to the end of this book. Chapter 6, in verse 15. And let's note what he writes here. Which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed. And what? Only sovereign. Now think about that just for a second. All the kings of the earth claim sovereignty. Do they not? But there is only one king who is the only, what? The only sovereign. So folks, when a person, when a mere ball of dust stands up and claims sovereignty over someone else. They are lying. Any authority that they have is a delegated authority from the only sovereign. 
And folks, if He's the only sovereign, then we can be assured that He is ultimately in control of everything. All things are at His beckon. From the smallest germ or disease to the greatest exaltation that a man could possibly get on this earth. He is sovereign over it all. The only sovereign. And of course, we've been talking about He is the King of kings. He sets up, He puts down. He is the Lord of all so-called lords. He raises them up, He puts them down. And then in verse 16, it says, who alone possesses immortality. So is He the only sovereign? And He is the only one that possesses immortality. Aren't you glad He shares that with believers? (laughs) That that eternal life that is in God, He shares... But folks, He's the only life. Everything else depends on Him. And of course, pharaohs, you listen to documentaries about pharaohs and their tombs and how the hieroglyphics and all that is written on there, all professing immortality, all delineating how that king after he dies is to get on a boat and he's to travel down the river to immortality. Our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only possessor of immortality. And I love this one. and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. So is He invisible? He is invisible, yet He dwells in an unapproachable light. No creature can approach that light. you agree with that? What does that mean? How does that encourage me in my prayer? Because, folks, this means this, that His kingship is beyond assault. All the kings of the earth rage against God's Messiah. They all want His place. They all want world dominion. They all want people to bow down to them, to their laws, to their mind, to what they want. And they raise their fist against the God of heaven. But He is unassaultable. <laughs> Even if all the armies of the earth came together and said, we're, we're going after God's Christ. Well... He dwells in unapproachable light. They can't see it, (laughs) nor can they see it. They have no ability to see it. And folks, here's the beautiful thing. The church of Jesus Christ has seen a measure of this light. 
We have seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of our great King. But fallen man, the armies of the world, the Supreme Court justices of this life, the rulers that want to ascend to the top, the most powerful nation of the earth, they've never seen it. And they have no ability to see it. And folks, you can't ultimately get the victory over something you haven't seen or have the ability to see. <laughs> that really ought to encourage us to pray. Because he who is in this inapproachable light, who is invisible, is visible through the pages of our Bible. And He has condescended to hear the prayers of His people. For kings of the earth and all who are in authority. For this reason, so that we may live a quiet and tranquil life. Let's go to our great King in prayer.